tonight's topic is Ireland and the United States from 1917 to Trump. And of course, uh, this, is the, this is the centenary of the entry of the United States into the First World War. Uh, we had a very lively head school in Cove uh, a few weeks ago, uh, focusing on that particular event. But we're going to take a, a broader uh, look at the relations between the two, the two nations uh, this evening. Now, uh, Mark Manser told me this story, actually. He says that when British diplomats are trying to impress their Irish equivalents, they, they talk about the special relationship the United Kingdom has with the United States. And then Irish diplomats sort of sit back with their whiskey and relax and say, well, we've got a unique relationship with the United <laughs> States. Uh, and that implies that relations between the two countries have always been cosy and cordial and friendly, lots of shamrock and bonhomie and whatever. But uh, that wasn't always the case. Patrick, I'd like to go to, go to you first just to give us a, a kind of a picture of what's going on in the United States in 1917 because this is a year after the Easter Rising. The United States has entered you know, the, the war against the Germans. So essentially, all these Irish Americans are either actually or potentially subversives. Very good. Well, first of all, um, it's a pleasure to be here. I always love these head schools. I have to say, I have a baby on the way. So when I have my phone out here and when I'm anxiously checking, it is not that I'm bored and trying to check the sports or, or, or checking anything else. He, uh, he came in, he said, am, he said, how long is this thing going to last? And I was like, yeah. geez, man, come on. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 if, if, if I run off suddenly, it's not because of the hostility Patrick, of the questions. I've been, been interested in this as well, because if, if Patty runs out the room, it means more work for me when you talk, <laughs> right? Uh, uh, it's, it's very interesting to look at Woodrow Wilson and his presidency because he was re-elected in 1916 uh, and actually on, on, on a promise of keeping America out of the war, but he didn't do well in certain states that had a large Irish-American population and he actually blamed the Irish Americans. Now, actually, in, re in more recent years, political scientists have looked at those results and they've said, well, actually, the Irish Americans, the German Americans did vote for him. But he blamed the Irish Americans and the German Americans for, for not supporting him enough. And he actually hated what he called the hyphenates, the people who had a hyphen in their identity. And he said that these hyphens were daggers pointing at the heart of American society. And it's very interesting, uh, America enters the war in 1917. In 1918, in January of 1918, there is a presentation of a Robert Emmett statue to Woodrow Wilson in the White House. And it was a little miniature replica of the Robert Emmett statue that we have up on St. Stephen's Green. And it was presented by an Irish-American senator for California called James Phelan. And James Phelan gave a brilliant speech to Robert Emmett saying, this was a great patriot and inspiring example and, and no one was more brutal towards Ireland in its history than Britain, but Robert Emmett stood up for the rights of the Irish people and he was a true patriot. And Wilson was furious. And he said afterwards that he thought that the senator should have been arrested for treason because at a time when they were at war with Germany on the side of Britain, for someone to say something like that was, was horrific. And in Wilson's own speech, he really uh, brushed over the whole thing. And he said, well, Robert Emmett, what he did in his day doesn't have to be done in this day. And he showed no real sympathy for, for uh, Irish, Irish affairs over there. Bernard, do you want to come in on that? Yeah, I think um, 
yet I think when you look at uh, the treatment of Irish America, particularly, and remember we're, when we're talking about Irish America, we're talking about largely about Catholic Irish America from 1917 onwards, in, in relation to other um, of those hyphenates, you find that in fact he treated German Americans much more harshly. Um, he, treat, he didn't, for example, hold the same kind of show trials which were held, held for Hindu Americans, even though there was a very strong Irish American uh, dimension to uh, the plotting that went on in support of Indian nationalists uh, in California. Um, even though people like Kohalan and uh, John T. Ryan, I mean, they were followed, they were treated as to use your own term, uh, Tommy, initially, as radicals and as, subver as subversives. But in comparison to German-Americans and the treatment of Ger German-Americans, the Irish-Americans really, in a sense, didn't have that same harsh treatment at all. Only about 77 of them were actually arrested, where you have over, you know, you have thousands of German-Americans. Um, and then I think on, on top of that, even though Wilson is, as you said, he's... he's He's, he's, I mean, the, the difficulty for Irish, for Catholic and Clonagail Irish America at the time was that Wilson knew an awful lot about Ireland. He had visited Ireland as a young man. Um, he knew about constitutional nationalism. He wrote about it in an essay when he was in Princeton. Um, and the difficulty really was that he knew too much, really, about Ireland and the Irish question. Um, so, therefore, when it comes to wartime, yes, he hated those, those Clonagail who... Um, and those, those hyphenates, but he wasn't anti-Catholic. He had employed Jews and Catholics in Princeton University, got a lot of flack for it. Um, Tumulty, Joe Tumulty, who was his private secretary, was an Irish-American, took a lot of flack for that. Um, so it, it, was, it was, in effect, it was the way I think Clonagail went about their business that also irritated him from the very beginning. Um, but really, I, I, I would think that when you look at the way uh, Irish America is treated during the war, 1917-1918, it, it could have been much harsher um, in the way German America John, and others. In, I just realised I didn't introduce the panel. This is Bernard <laughs> Whelan from the University of Limerick. And of course, Patrick Gagan, Open Proceedings, uh, Patrick Gagan, Trinity and News Talks Talk on History. And this is John Borgonovo of UCC, our, our token American uh, on the panel. <laughs> Are there any Americans in the audience, by the way? We'll, we'll go easy on you. Nice. Don't, don't, don't worry. No, that's, that's great, actually. This is, this is our first really international uh, hedge school. And then finally here, uh, uh, a man in his no introduction because he's on every second uh, History Island Hedge School panel, uh, Michael uh, Kennedy, uh, dir uh, Executive Director of the Royal Irish Academy's Documents on Irish uh, Foreign Policy. John, you were going to come in there. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, in, in Ireland, we have, a, we have kind of a narrow view of Irish America. And we always think of Irish America as being kind of like Tammany Hall, Boston Irish. But like the American Irish, it's not a monolith. There's different kind, and there's different Irish political factions in different places. There's Kansas City Irish, there's Chicago Irish, there's Montana Irish. I'm descended from Oregon cowboy Irish, very little political power. Uh, and there's, uh, but there are different kind of machines, electoral machines, um, there are different factions. And so, uh, they're not really that easy to kind of herd together. Also, uh, in the big thing to think about in the United States in this time is Wilson's a Democrat. And the Democrats at that time were big city machines, uh, very much organized around a lot of the immigrants, including a lot of Catholic America, including a lot of Irish America, but also deep south, uh, rural, poor whites. 
who very much don't vote Democrat today. Um, and that was kind of the, 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 the tensions within the Democratic Party. And then you had kind of different kind of progressive wings as well. But so there's the, there was an assumption here that Irish America could kind of pull the strings of the Democratic, uh, Democratic Party. And that's exactly what some of the, the, the Republican-minded, uh, in terms of Irish Republican-minded uh, Irish American Democrats tried to do, but Wilson resisted that. And that led to just a lot of tension. And you're going to see that tension just throughout the whole period from 1917 all the way to 1923. Just before we finish on, on Wilson, um, I have to say, I can, I can never get over the, 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 maybe it's just a prejudice on my part. This is one of the world's biggest hypocrites, right? He goes, bangs on about the rights of self-determination or whatever. But it turns out it's only the rights of self-determination for the nations of the defeated powers after the First World War. Anyone leap to Wilson's defence or join in the attack? I, I, I can't stand Wilson. <laughs> and, and, and not only that, he was probably, uh, like, he was one of the worst racists ever to be in the White House as well. Uh, the first movie ever screened in the White House was D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation, uh, a very racist movie that quoted Wilson extensively throughout it in the captions. And Wilson said afterwards that it was like writing history with lightning and that it was only regret was that it was also true. Uh, I, 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 I do think he's, he's quite, a, 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 quite a, a hypocrite as a president. But I mean, that cuts no ice in, in, in real politic, uh, Bernadette. Well, I, I think the, the issue with the self-determination side of it was that um, I, I think when he, he talks about it initially as, as part of his uh, post-war settlement, he, he doesn't think it through. He hasn't thought through the consequences of it at all. Um, he's thinking about it, as, as Patrick and, uh, was saying, in terms of, and as you were saying, those defeated nations. Like, there were Egyptians out there, and, and you've, you've written before, Michael, about Ireland and Egypt relations. I mean, you had Egyptian nationalists, you had Indian nationalists, Irish nationalists. They're not the only ones who were looking for self-determination once the war ended. And particularly when you come to Irish America then, because the, the majority of Irish America, remember, rode in behind him from 1917, 1918 onwards. They joined the US Army, they, they, they contributed to the bonds, uh, they become loyal Americans, and so they're looking then for their reward at the end of it. And, and his Secretary of State, Lansing, um, is, is constantly saying to him, you know, you've, you've made promises on self-determination, uh, and, and you've a lot of people expecting, and, and you're not going to be able to come through it, but he does not move from it. Self-determination is, is this totally critical part yeah. of the First World War because the Americans come in and Wilson announces that you know self-determination is is one of the reasons they're fighting the war to give it kind of this nobility. And what that does is that signals nationalists all around the world that the things are changing. The people in, in colonies and in, in places like India, but in Africa, in Asia, uh, and across Europe, that things have changed. And then that just leads to repercussions everywhere. And expectations are raised, not just in Ireland, but across the world. Mm. And that's the problem, I yeah. think, that the, the expectations are raised among so many of these nationalist groups. But as you said, Tommy, realpolitik trumps all. The special relationship with mm. Britain, particularly in the Irish case, is go sorry, in, in, when Ireland is being dealt with, that special relationship between Washington and London will trump everything, will, will overcome everything, and Ireland will always lose within that, as will be the case through the 20th century. So those who believe in Wilsonian self-determination that is going to be applied don't see the, the bigger picture that London is not just looking to Ireland. Ireland cannot be granted independence because then you'll have a domino effect and they're looking towards India, the great game, Russia, that particular 
portion of the world, and Egypt, of course, as well, with the Suez Canal, that Britain has a much greater uh, geopolitical and realpolitik agenda there, and there is nothing that the Anglophile State Department is going to do to upset the British agenda. So Irish self-determination really does not matter. Just remind me, it, it, Wilson's in power up until the spring of 1921, am I right? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the election is in November in 1920. And so he, he suffers a stroke, and, and that pretty much incapacitates him for the final six months. Okay, but he's, he, he is around, though, for the bulk of the War of Independence. Uh, I, I mean, suppose, he's, he's, yeah, yeah. yeah. So how does that play out? I mean, in the sense that the war is now over, right? So it's, it's, it's a little bit less difficult if you're an Irish subversive in well, the United States. I think Michael's point is, is the right one, that uh, I think you see this with when John F. Kennedy is president. You see it uh, consistently, I think, throughout the century. Uh, the view is, is generally tends to be on the British side. Uh, there is a very Anglophile... Uh, mentality there in the State Department and uh, like Wilson visited Ireland in 1899 he visited Trinity he thought Dublin was the dirtiest city he had ever seen but he loved wandering around Trinity because it had a great statue of Edmund Burke and his thoughts were full of Burke and uh, he was a Burke you know he was he was uh, uh, but there are no heroes in the story like I mentioned James Phelan the Irish American senator who presented him with the the Robert Emmett statue like his big issue uh, in politics was he wanted a blanket ban on Japanese people being allowed into the United States. That even Irish-American groups, every group saw threats somewhere else. Michael, can I, can I just move the discussion on a little bit now, just up to the, 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 the 1920s, like when, when uh, the Irish Free State is established. Actually, right? that, that links in very nicely with what Patrick yeah. was saying there, that the problem for Ireland is when it's trying to develop its relations with America, that it has first of all to deal with Irish America, with all these groups, all the splits, and then try and deal with the question of how Civil War Ireland, how Ireland that split over the treaty, that is on the verge perhaps of becoming a failed state, how that state is seen amongst the Irish American groups and win them over. And only then can the Department of Foreign Affairs, External Affairs, go on to deal with the State Department, with Capitol Hill, with the White House. And I think that's a failing through much of the 20th century in Irish diplomacy with the US, that it has to concentrate on the Irish diaspora in the US. And it doesn't necessarily have the resources or understand all those different groups we were talking about earlier. When you're talking about missions made up of maybe two, three, four people, and but I, I come back to the point that the first thing that Irish diplomacy has to do is win those people over, win Irish America over, or at least neutralize it, and only then it can deal with the bigger picture. And so in the 20s, the US is very much a battleground for Irish diplomacy and a battleground for the international recognition of the free state. Okay, so that, mean, that means selling the treaty, right? Mm. So, I mean, it, it would seem to me then that's an ultra-sensible approach that you, you first of all, you, you try and appeal to the Irish-American lobby, first of all. I mean, it's not just about resources. You can see the logic in well, it's, that. It's resources, first How, of all, with the Doyle loan yeah, and with the, yeah. the, the, but, the idea of getting money out of the US. But who wins the argument? What, which way does the argument fall in terms of pro uh, for or against the treaty? I, I think I, I, my view is America is, is Irish-America stays out by the time of the Civil War, that it's... Um, it's a game then between, and a dangerous game, between the different groups representing the free state in Ireland. And Bernadette will know this a lot better than me with you know, the attacks on the Irish uh, legation or Irish Consulate, offices, consulates yeah. by 
anti-treaty sides against the incumbent pro-treaty uh, Tim Smithy, the, the first uh, Irish uh, minister to the US. And I think it's, it's important too in the 20s that the United States is the first state to which Ireland appoints a diplomat, a minister plenipotentiary, ranked below um, uh, ambassador. It's the first state that Ireland signs a treaty with in the, the Kellogg-Briand yeah. Pact. Uh, the first state, the United States is the first state, I think, to have a resident minister plenipotentiary in Dublin with uh, Frederick Sterling in 27, 28? Yeah, 27. So uh, America is, the United States is so important for Ireland to win international um, sovereignty you know, through relations with, with the United States. So I think that's the, the key thing that happens in, in the 20s, that America is this diplomatic battleground. And in the end, Dublin wins. Anti-treaty, the anti-treaty side is, is um, defeated in the US. Irish America opts out. And Ireland is able to present itself as a sovereign, independent, stable state to uh, the United States. Mm -hmm. And it's a success story in, in, in diplomacy and, from I mean, difficult beginnings. Yeah, and not least because Smitty is able to form alliances with people like the New York police. Um, he gets assistance from the, increasing he'll get assistance from um, the intelligence services. So he's able to get information about what those irregulars, those anti-treatyites are doing in New York and Chicago and Boston, etc. Um, so he's able then early on to distinguish himself from these others. And one of his great challenges and one of his successes is that he does establish himself as the only uh, voice to represent the free state. Uh, and he makes his own relationships, again, in an Anglophile department. One of the interesting points, I think, about the State Department, and the late Ronan Fanning did some wonderful work on the State Department uh, in relation to partition and the Anglo-Irish relationship. Um, there's a guy called John Hickerson, who becomes a civil servant in the State Department from the mid-20s onwards. He's there until the 1950s. And he is the most anti-Irish Anglophile of individuals in the State Department. He's in a key position because he's head, either head or uh, his assistant head or head of the Division of Western European Affairs. So the, so the challenges which people like Smitty and then Mac White later on, Michael Mac White would have, was to have their own voice heard. And of course, this is one of the challenges in the 1970s, which the Irish diplomats then in the States still faced. Mm -hmm. They had to get around that mentality of the State Department constantly going first to the, to the British Embassy, to the ambassador. But that's really, the, the, I think, the key point in the 1920s with Timothy Smitty being appointed to Washington, that he's not only winning over has to deal with the treaty, anti-treaty split, he's also got to deal with the Foreign Office in London who say to the State Department, oh no, we will represent the interests of the, the free state in, uh, in Washington. And the, the free state, the Irish free state, is the first dominion to appoint a diplomatic representative separate to London. And it's important that it's in the United States because of that historical resonance for Ireland. So Smithy is fighting a game on, on many, many fronts here. He's fighting a battle on many fronts to try and preserve the independent diplomatic representation of the Irish Free State in the United States. But like the context is that Anglo-American relations are changing. Mm. So like the, the special relationship before 1917, 1918, with America was with France. France was their traditional historical ally. You know, France gives America the, the Statue of Liberty. Um, the, but this changes, and there's a sense that a an ang new Anglo-Saxon world, white 
it's very, there's a race, there's a total race dimension to this. White Anglo-Saxons uh, are going to kind of their natural right is to rule the world and the American Anglo Alliance can do that. Those voices are really loud in the State Department, which is a WASP, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant establishment. It's very much part of this elite, of this East Coast elite um, that has very much associated itself and looked towards Britain. Uh, and so there is, uh, that is the headwind that Ireland faces in the War of Independence, in the Civil War, and all through the 20s. Uh, how does American relations with Iron, Ireland affect American relations with Britain? Because American relations with Britain are a hell of a lot more important than they are with Ireland. Patrick, can I bring you in there? Because you, you, this crops up again and again. I mean, you, you refer to WASP, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, and the, the, you know, the Protestant Catholic thing, right? How does anti-Catholicism feature in all of this in, in American politics? Yeah, it's, it's actually very strong. Uh, we know that in 1960, when John F. Kennedy ran, he had to give uh, his famous speech on religion. It inspired Barack Obama to give his famous speech on race when he was running in 2008, because Kennedy uh, was aware of what had happened to the first Catholic who had run for the presidency in 1928, uh, someone who came from my part of the, of the country in Westmeath, uh, Al Smith and his two uh, maternal grandparents came from Westmeath. Uh, but he, he ran for the Democrats against Herbert Hoover, but he was absolutely annihilated in the campaign. There was a photograph produced of him by one of the new tunnels in New York, uh, because he, he, I think he was governor of New York at the time. Uh, there was a photograph of him at the tunnel, and it, it was said that this was a secret tunnel that the Pope was building from Italy all the way over to America, and that the Pope had a car ready so that he could travel <laughs> back and forth uh, underneath this tunnel. Uh, it, also, they, it was also claimed that the Pope had established a base in San Francisco so he could uh, run the country uh, from, from that operation. And there were all these uh, cartoons then of, of, uh, of Al Smith with his, with his ministers and the Pope would be there and the bishops and they would be uh, deciding everything. Uh, they, they criticized him because Al Smith liked to drink. Now admittedly it was the era of prohibition so a drink wasn't just illegal, it was unconstitutional. But uh, So they made him out to be an alcoholic, they made him out to be the typical you know, Irish drinker. Uh, and then also that he would be a puppet to the Pope. And uh, this fear of Catholicism, that Catholics weren't able to think for themselves, it was a very powerful force even there in the 1920s and even something that JFK felt that he had to address in 1960. Right. Michael, can I come back to you on the, just the, 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 you know, the 20s and 30s, right? Now, the Irish Free State had sort of some grandiose notions about itself mm. and its role. Could you just fill us in on that? There was this sense, if we come back to more Wilsonian ideas and the, the League of Nations in, included, I think, the last of Wilson's 14 points, that the, the League of Nations was so important for Ireland in between the wars because it was the organ through which Ireland could develop its standing on the, on the world stage, not having a wide range of missions. One representative in Geneva was enough to um, span the globe, if you like, from a small diplomatic service. And the hope and this is in the early days of Irish diplomacy in 1922, 23, 24, when Ireland has just joined the League, is that Ireland will be able to somehow act, because of its geographical position, as uh, a bridge between the old world and the new, and somehow bring the United States maybe 
into the international system to a greater extent or even bring it into the League of Nations. Now, these ideas are, are grandiose, as you said. They're, they're absolutely um, out of this world. They're, they're never going to be very successful. But it shows the way that the Department of External Affairs, the tiny Department of External Affairs in Dublin, is thinking about what Ireland's world role can be at this stage. And bear in mind, up to 1929, the two main diplomatic offices that Ireland has are Geneva at the League of Nations, where Michael McWhite, who we've, we've heard already, is based before he's sent to Washington, and Washington, uh, where Tim Smithy is based. So you can see the reason that there's a sort of um, fulcrum point, at least in Dublin's mind, in Dublin, between the old world and the new, and maybe Dublin, with its unique relationship with the US, can somehow draw isolationist America back into, into the world system. Now, it's, it's a crazy idea. It doesn't... Um, not very well at all, <laughs> right. in fact, as, a, as it right. happened. And Irish diplomacy, it's one of the, the, the points that Jared Keown has written about recently in uh, a book on, on Irish foreign policy in the 1920s is once the diplomatic service is established, the reality of what it takes to represent a state overseas uh, clicks in. And these fanciful notions that the Doyle Aaron diplomatic service had of Ireland... Uh, to use a later metaphor, striding the world like a colossus, as was said, of Ireland's time in the UN in the late 50s and early 60s. These things do not come to pass. Ireland is really into the hard slog of diplomacy in the interwar years, making a name for itself internationally, the hard slog of, of British-Irish relations, revising the treaty, and then what we were talking about earlier in the United States, of simply getting the state established in the American mindset as a viable international entity, free of civil war, uh, open for development. Um, and one of the things, that I mean, to, to, just to, to, to go on for, for a moment maybe, is that there's another angle. As we, Bernadette and I were talking about soft diplomacy before we started. Ireland is being sold in the US by Smithy and later by McWhite as a tourist destination for the first time, well, for the first time by the Free State in the 1920s. The transatlantic aviation structures are beginning to develop and Dublin feels that it can promote itself uh, as a base uh, for transatlantic aviation, an eastern base for transatlantic aviation. Lindbergh, when he flies the Atlantic on, on many of his trips, when he sees Ireland, he says, I have hit Europe on the nose. So it's that notion geopolitically of Ireland trying to at least say, well, if we can't bring the, the new world back to the old, at least we can sell ourselves because of our location as important geog politically, geographically, in tourism, and to an extent, a very limited extent in trade to the United States. Does, so the, bear, does it bear fruit at all? I mean, I, it, well, I think it does in the aviation sense that the creation of Foynes and mm -hmm. uh, later Rhinana, Shannon airports are very much a, a result of this. The tourism, I think it's a, a bit more of a slow burner and trade in the 1920s and 1930s, international trade is really not a, a goer after the Wall Street crash and with the, the protectionism of the 30s. Now, I want to move on to... Uh, I think most Irish historians' favourite American, uh, David Gray, who was the uh, <laughs> ambassador uh, here during the, the Second World War, or the emergency, as we, we like to sometimes call it. Bernadette, uh, who was David Gray, you know, and how did he get the job? Well, Gray was the successor to a guy called John Cudahy. And John Cudahy was a favourite of, of de Valera's um, because he was Irish-American, he was Catholic, and he was very much in favour of... Uh, he was a, a Roosevelt appointee. And then Gray is appointed. And Gray was uh, not a professional diplomat. Um, he what was, was he? What was his background? A journalist. Okay. Um, and he then also had been... Um, at that stage, he was in the later stages of life. 
um, nothing wrong with that. Um, and he was then, of course, married to a woman who, Maud, who was the aunt of Eleanor Roosevelt. So there was somewhat, if words were being unkind, a bit of nepotism so there. So that's how we got the in job. In terms of theatre appointment, okay, okay. indeed. Um, he had uh, preconceived notions about Ireland. He detested Irish America. He detested the way they had this kind of informal influence in Congress. And less, uh, less access, obviously, to the White House, really. But at the same time, it irritated him. Um, the way they operated. So when he came to, to Dublin, uh, initially he's quite, um, the relationship with de Valera and with Joseph Walsh, and Michael would know more about that, um, was quite open and quite positive. But once the war really begins to get underway, in 1939, the threats to Britain become very obvious. Um, the offer of then unity is put in place if Ireland would enter the war uh, and partition would be ended. And then from then on, Gray really begins to, his relationship with de Valera just deteriorates. And if there's any can you, real... Can you blame him, though? I mean, you're looking from his point of view, right? Gray. You know, yeah. Yes, you can. I'm, gonna, I'm just throwing it out there, right? I mean, he's, he's there, he's there, you know, America first, right? He's a diplomat. Uh, yeah. so, so and of course, he's also been compared the whole time to the German minister, Hempel, who de Valera got, and the, the Department of External Affairs got on extremely well with, was a professional diplomat. Okay, he was on the wrong side. Um, so there was all these comparatives with Cudahy, with Hempel, and really Gray came out of it very badly. And I think the other person to, to compare mm. him with is, is Sir John Maffey, Maffey. Maffey. Yeah. Lord Rugby, yeah. the, the yeah. British representative. Yeah in Dublin, who is able to, despite he is first and foremost the representative of the British Empire in Dublin, uh, he puts Britain and the war effort first, but he is able to smooth his way in to talk with de Valera, with Walsh, um, Joe Walsh, the Secretary General of the Department of External Affairs, whereas Gray, on the other hand, is uh, just a, the, uh, like a, a, a tank. He, he just is like a bulldozer in his his hatred for Ireland, really, and, and non, I suppose, non-Anglo-Irish Ireland, for whatever you want to call it, traditional Catholic Ireland, that is so immense but during what, the war. What's his, what's his own background? Just, uh, just yeah. clarifying that. I mean, uh, in terms of et ethnically, his own ethnic background Gosh. as an American. I have no idea. Yeah, but I, I just, he's no Irish background, yeah. though. I no, don't, no, no, I don't, no, not, I don't yeah. think so. Yeah. No, no, he doesn't. Very but, he has, but he has Roosevelt He's background. very much establishment. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if, if you take it that Roosevelt is elite East Coast, okay. hmm. um, yeah, that's the circle, that's the world he's travelled in. Yeah. And that's right. my understanding yeah. of, of Gray as well. And his ability to perform as a diplomat is minimal. You might not like the country you're representing, you're, you're, you're in representing your home country, in, but you don't get involved in its, own, its domestic affairs. You, you don't play the way... Gray did, and he couldn't be removed because of that connection with the Roosevelt. Why did he want the job in the first place? I, I, I think he I mean, felt... He, he, he obviously lobbied for it. Yeah, I think he felt that he could do mm. something in mm. Ireland. He could be a success in Ireland. Uh, what journalist doesn't want a, a go at, at diplomacy and representing their country overseas? I also think, come back to Bernadette's point, he had a very positive view of Ireland initially, and that changes as the, the war uh, progresses and uh, with the fall of France, that really struck me in his first dispatches back to Washington. He, also, he, just, didn't show, he just didn't show respect. Yeah. That was that was the big thing. He, he just didn't show uh, the the nation and institution respect that it was, and that was that's what drove Dev around the bend. Mm. Patrick, can I, can I bring you in here because I, I, I wanted to ask a question. Did it make any difference what Gray said or felt 
and talking about the complexity of the American political machine, right? Mm. Because it could be argued that the really important ambassador is the American ambassador in London, mm. right? Who at this time is uh, Joseph Kennedy. Yeah. Now, he, he, he's coming from a totally different angle. Yeah, like Joseph Kennedy doesn't cover himself in glory in, in this period at all. Uh, he, in, in the run-up even to the outbreak of the Second World War, he was arranging these secret meetings with uh, the Nazis uh, without even getting the permission of his own State Department. Uh, effectively, he was a, like a, an appeaser, mm. and uh, FDR removed him after the, the 1940, what was it, the 1940 election? 1940. Uh, yeah, once, once he kind of used him just to kind of keep him on side for when he needed him and then removed him. And it was kind of something that uh, John F. Kennedy was always aware of then, that this was kind of a, a taint in the family background that uh, uh, Joseph P. Kennedy had, 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 had you know, had really been quite dodgy and so unsound you during that the JFK then possibly overcompensated on the pro-British so, side. So, same with the brother. The the I mean, yeah. Joe Joe yeah. Junior. I mean, basically went on almost a suicide mission. As and and what, what John F. Kennedy was doing in the Pacific, that's about as dangerous duty as you can get. And that was exactly what they were doing. They were compensating for the and and also making sure that they're politi that politically they weren't compromised by their dad's yeah. their dad's standing. But I think, right. I think the, the critical relationship that we haven't mentioned yet that Gray is on the verge of messing up is the relationship between G2, Irish military intelligence, and the OSS, the, the, the forerunner of the CIA. That the, the diplomatic relationship between Ireland and America is one thing during the war, but the intelligence relationship is so critical in terms of usage of, of foins, this, the seaplane base, in terms of, of, of weather traffic, but in particular in terms of the vast, I think it's Operation Bolero, the vast movement of American military uh, you know, uh, soldiers and equipment and planes across the Atlantic in, in the run-up to D-Day. And I think that the, the, the relationship between senior Irish officers, and remember something we, we should have referred to in the 20s is, the senior Irish officers of the 20s, the smart Irish officers of the 20s, studied with the US military. So that link is now, I think, gone in today's defense forces. But people like, I think, Mickey General Costello, Mickey Costello. Joe Costello, mm -hmm. studies with the US Marines. He's in, in Fort Leavenworth, I believe, and he passes with a very high rate. This is the, uh, he beat the commander of all Irish forces in the kind of the, the area south of Athlone. I always forget if that's the first or the second division. He's an extremely capable officer. He's got great links with the American Consul General in Cork, mm. I think, during the war. So there's a whole di diplomatic intelligence network linked into the wider war effort in there that Gray, through his antics, is putting at stake. Uh, and, and one thing I, I, I wanted to say this for Gray, my, my colleague Kate O'Malley in Documents in Irish Foreign Policy found a great letter where it appears that he is curb crawling around Marion <laughs> Square. Now this is, you know, this is from a man who uh, holds seances, and um, it's a it's a wonderful letter. And it maybe he's just there, like was it Gladstone or Disraeli, to, to save fallen women. But uh, when we found it, we thought this really is uh, getting into your. Your host country's affairs a little bit too much, but, 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 but what, weren't they going? I'm sorry, weren't they going to? Wasn't OSS going to send over Errol Flynn to Ireland? Mm. Yeah, it's part, yep. part of kind of this, the getting us on board. And yep. yeah. but yeah. the OSS even described Gray as a testy old gentleman. I mean, mm. they see what he's like and they knew what he was like. But there's no sense, and even when you read what's behind the green curtain, mm. uh, there's no sense of that benevolent neutrality 
which was so important and all those different links that you have uh, that you identified there there's no sense of his awareness of that I mean he's really an amateur in the world of diplomacy and he's worse he's a bungling amateur just before we finish with Gray I wanted to just talk about the the, the, the American note right uh, February 1944 who wants to talk about that this is where essentially Gray threatens the, the, the southern state with the, uh, the US army if they don't I think this is where throw out the, the German and Japanese legations. Where you see um, Gray at his worst, mm. that G2 and the Department of External Affairs have tied up all communications from Ireland in the run-up to D-Day. Ireland is sealed. Nothing is getting out of Ireland, into Ireland. This is agreed with London. It's ag agreed to an extent with Washington. And then Gray comes in and says to de Valera, well, Ireland is like a leaky sieve. Uh, I want you to remove the uh, German, Italian and Japanese diplomatic missions from Dublin because this will compromise D-Day. Uh, and the Irish reaction to this is, we are about to be invaded by the United States across the border. This is a, a, a suggestion or this is a threat that we cannot allow to succeed. The forward units of the defence forces are sent up to the border. They know what they're facing. It's a suicide mission from, from their point of view, but they will have to stop the American forces in the north coming over the border. Gray has precipitated this massive crisis in Irish-American relations through his bungling amateurism. Um, Lord Rugby is nowhere to be seen in all of this, the, the British representative. Um, Gray has simply forced the pace not realizing what the OSS have done in their connections with G2 to, um, to make sure that Ireland is, is secure. So how, the, the, how is it resolved? Is he just ignored? Uh, it's, it's resolved through gentle diplomatic negotiation between the different sides. Are, are, are documents are, are published or not published. And it's, it, there are discussions in the State Department. You might know more about this than me, Bernadette. And it, it all is allowed to calm down. But Gray does one, one other thing, and I'll, I'll be brief on it. As Germany is about to collapse, Gray goes into de Valera and says, give me the keys to the German legation. And this annoys de Valera immensely because you do not get involved, as I said, in the domestic affairs of the state you're representing, you're, you're, you're in. Um, de Valera says, Mr. Gray, I will not, I'll not do that. I will not give them to you. Ireland is a sovereign state. Germany has not collapsed. Um, Gray goes off. But de Valera is angry beyond belief. And it's the following day or day after he goes and he signs Hitler's Book of Condolence as a way of showing to the Americans, um, I, won't, I don't know what language I can use since we've already recorded, but you know, he, he's showing it to, the, to Gray, I'm going to do what I want. I am the teacher for this Very country. Spectacularly. It is, it's it's, a, it's an absolutely crazy <laughs> moment in Irish diplomatic history. It's, it's inept, it's stupid, but it is done, in, and, and no, as we all know, never make a decision when you're angry. But again, it's Gray provoking de Valera as he enjoys doing so much during the war. And we're still paying the repercussions for this bit of um, absolutely inept diplomacy you know, so many years later. No one has forgotten the signature of the Book of Condolence. Nobody knows what the Book of Condolence is, I think, but um, I think it was sold in Belfast after the war. But again, that's what Gray is capable of. How much damage did he do? I mean, how, how, how long is he in office for? When, when is he? Until 47. 47, okay. Even though de Valera goes to great lengths to try and use pressure in, with Irish-American politicians in Congress to have him removed. I mean, he's doing, he does that's that from the very early. That's, so it, that's mm. the problem. Yeah. And he stay, even after FDR dies and Truman comes in, the vice president takes over, he doesn't move him. 
Now, he is somewhat helpful as you head into, I don't know whether you want to go into 46, 47. Um, you know, he does support Irish. Um, Lamas goes off on a trip looking for uh, increased food supplies for Ireland, like wheat and things like that. He does support that. Um, he supports the air agreement um, and, you know, further work on that. But um, th th no matter what De Valera does, he stays there until 1947 and right. they, they don't move him. And, and all the hints are being given yeah, to yeah. the State Department. David Gray is persona non grata or effectively persona non grata in Dublin. We want him out. Mm. But Truman won't remove him. I mean, the, the, problem, the problem is... Uh, if you go back to 1940-41, there was a huge anti-war movement in the state, the American First Movement, uh, language uh, recently adopted by our current president. Uh, the American First Movement was very much a, a very popular anti-war movement that had a whole lot of support in the United States. And had the Japanese not attacked, uh, conducted a surprise attack against the Americans at Pearl Harbor, the Americans would not have entered the war in 1941. There was intense opposition to it. The big strong heart of the opposition was a lot of German Americans and a whole lot of the Irish Americans. So in America, Irish America was very much associated with appeasement, with staying out of the war, with maybe even pro-Germanism, because some of the, the really hardline Irish Republican outfits were pro-German, kind of uh, 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 on that trajectory. Then you have, and, and Ireland is neutral in the war, even though it's a benevolent neutrality, they're secretly assisting the Allies, but people in the public don't know that. Then you have Gray kind of giving these statements and giving the impression that Ireland is pro-German. And that's how the Americans associate Ireland after the war. They believe that the, the Irish were pro-German, which isn't true. And that's, that has immense ramifications for, uh, for um, uh, Irish-American relations for the next decade. Okay, so you're, you're, we're looking at a pretty frosty period then here into the 50s. I mean, Ireland doesn't join the United Nations until 1955. Not it's not true. let in. It's not let in, yeah. And, yeah. and the US does, and I think the, and the UK do want Ireland in. And that's, a, that's, a, that's a USSR veto. Yeah, but, yeah. but neither Washington nor London are really going to move on it because of that long uh, legacy of neutrality. Nobody likes a neutral. You know, and that's what Ireland is paying for from 1946 yeah. to 1955. Um, we get, and it's your area, Bernadette, martial aid, you know, limited amount of martial aid. I mean, we're only we're included in the martial plan um, for those strategic security reasons um, and for the emerging Cold War uh, purposes and in order to strengthen that Western world, America's world. Um, and that's the only reason. The irritation in the State Department is enormous. They don't want to give anything to Ireland. Um, so Ireland is included. It also would be seen as that if the Irish economy is improved by getting access to dollars and American goods, that in fact it could then feed Britain more and take the economic pressure, financial pressure off Britain. So they do allow Ireland in. Ireland is part of the Marshall Plan. It does get aid. It gets $148 million. But the majority of it is in loan form. Uh, unlike other states. Mm. So that meant that the most of it had to be paid back and we were still paying it back, believe it or not, into the 1980s. Um, so there's about 8 million only in grant, which was a huge shock because De Valera and Lamas initially negotiated in 1947, expecting the whole thing to be in, in loan form, and it isn't. So they get mm. there, they, 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 like again, it's that legacy of that whole David Gray uh, thing in America um, and the antipathy against the Irish. But there's another that point maybe quickly to bring in as well, the, the dirty word of partition, yeah. that because of Northern Ireland, the United States has geostrategically all it needs in the island of, of Ireland, both 
during the Second World War and during the Cold War. It needs bases somewhere on the island. It has them in the six counties of Northern Ireland. That's fine. Uh, the south of Ireland is uh, just a, an additional add-on. And I think you mentioned Ronan Fanning's work earlier. I think when Ronan was looking through State Department material in the 1980s, he came upon NSC planning papers yeah. showing really Ireland, forget it. You know, once Ireland, um, through Sean McBride, miscalculates on, uh, tries to gamble NATO membership for movement on Irish unity. And, and bear in mind, if you read the cabinet minutes on NATO membership, they say, we like NATO, we would like to join your organization, we think it's great, but partitioned Ireland can't join NATO, but a united Ireland will. Please, Washington, put pressure on London for Irish unity. No way, it's not gonna happen. So once McBride screws that one up, um, America realizes, or American, the American view is, with partitioned Ireland, we have all we want in the North through the Cold War, and the South can float away, we do not need it. We'll give it that limited amount of martial aid. Yeah. And we're, in, we're out in exterior darkness internationally up into the, the mid-1950s, really. We've no friends as a you know, legacy of neutrality. We've no friends during the Cold War. We're in a really problematic period. And Ivy House, Ivy House excuse me, knows this uh, after Sean McBride leaves office and Frank Aiken comes in for the first time in the 50s. We're deep so, in it. In the, in the so another, I mean, it's, it's the miserable 50s again, right? It always looms up. Uh, okay, now, this is the situation then, the context which the, the, the uh, visit of John F. Kennedy takes place. Well, uh, the, the, you know, there's one, the end of it. There's one critical thing to bring in. I thought you were going to link into it. It's, it's the shamrock ceremony right. that comes in in the, the middle. Of, in, the, in 1952, I think, John Hearn, and we've been very bad with our diplomats in Washington. Smithy had affairs and wasn't, you know, got bad press from that. McQuite redressed the balance. Bob Brennan during the war. So I'm sure you're going to bring uh, advisory to start this uh, yeah. discussion. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Uh, okay. <laughs> but when John Hearn is appointed to Washington in 1950, he realizes something needs to be done to improve his relationship with the, the, the powers that be in, in Washington. And he comes up with this really smart idea. I will bring President uh, Truman a small wooden box of shamrock on St. Patrick's Day, and I'll leave it for him at the White House, because he's in, is it Key West he is go to for his vacation? And Hearn thinks this is, what, this is the way to improve contacts between uh, Dublin and Washington. And the ceremony takes off. We know what it is today. There's no other small country of Ireland's kind of powerless, small size that has 15, 20 minutes with the most powerful person in the world. And it's thanks to Waterford-born John Hearn, the man who wrote Bunnock na Heron, the Irish Constitution, Ireland's Thomas Jefferson, I suppose. It's, it's thanks to Hearn that we have the shamrock ceremony and all the paraphernalia that evolved in the 70s and 80s. And that begins the improvement of Irish-American relations that links into where right. I butted in there rudely about and, the and Harry, Kennedy and Harry visit. Truman's, and Harry Truman's political base was the Kansas City Irish. He was a Pendergast machine. He was whole political base was Irish and Kansas City. Right. So there's, a, there's, there's kind of constant links. And that's always why when Democrats in the White House, there's generally better relations because they have a lot of these constituencies that are Irish-American. Just before, before we go on to JFK, I just want to, to, to point out to the audience, in case you haven't been at a head school before, that you are expected to participate. Uh, ask a few questions, difficult questions of our panel here, or make your own contribution from the floor. So I'll, I'll take questions. Any, any, if anybody wants to, to, to contribute, just put your hand up and we'll, we'll come to you. Patrick, okay, so 
the situation is, okay, we've got the slow burn of the shamrock uh, ceremony. Stroke of genius, it, it looks like, in retrospect. I'm assuming, by the way, that the, the, the shamrock have just left there. There was no hooli along oh, no, with not, it originally. Not that, that first that, occasion. Truman wasn't that, even there. You know, it's that that comes later. Yeah. Right. So, Paddy, just talk to us about the, the, the JFK's 1963 visit. Like, whose idea was it, first of all? Whose idea was it? Uh, well, I think Ryan Tuberty's book on it is really good. I think uh, for Ryan, it's it's the closing of 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 part of the. Sorry, was I, I, I was. I was shaking my head there. I don't think it's a very good book. All right. I know. <laughs> uh, I, I like it. I, I think it's 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 partly a closing of the of of the story for. Uh, uh, but I think uh, Ryan recognizes that uh, really Kennedy doesn't want to get involved with things like partition. Uh, that this is more of a sentimental visit. It's not. It's not going to mark a, a departure in American foreign policy. It's definitely not going to be allowed to interfere with the relationship with Britain, that it's more like a holiday than a serious bit of diplomacy. You know, the serious bit of diplomacy was the, the visit to Berlin, uh, f you know, a few days earlier when he made the famous speech. Uh, the trip to, to Ireland is him letting his his hair down and, and it's a bit of enjoyment. So it's, it's not actually a significant vic uh, visit at all, except for us that we imbue it with a kind of a, an aura and a significance. And we think that it's therefore one of the most important things in American history. Well, I mean, yeah, the the O'Kelly visit had taken place in 1959. Um, so, I mean, normally when you have one president visit, the invitation is sent out then for the, your president then to, to return. So that, that's where it come from. And it was just part of normal diplomatic process. Um, so things like visits, appointments, um, these are symbolic, but they're important and they, uh, they do mean something. So, um, I, I, and also they were, as Patrick said, I mean, they were feeding into fertile ground with him anyway. Um, but of course, what's interesting is that um, it's 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 it is also as he's he's got this as we to start it off with, he has this special relationship with Macmillan. Um, his Secretary of State doesn't even come to Ireland with him. Dean Rusk goes straight to London. So there isn't going to be any politics in Ireland. He decides not to go to Northern Ireland, which in itself said something. Um, but I mean, in terms of for the Irish. Um, and for Ireland, I think that is really the greater significance of it, is a small country on the international stage with all of this media. I mean, the only concerns which the, um, the, the security detail had was about the crowds um, in Ireland and that, he might, that you know, they might overcome him. Um, you know, there were no other security concerns. So, uh, so you have the huge media in Ireland for the first time Ireland is on the international stage um, in terms of this new technology that's out there. Um, and um, so, and, and obviously, then outside of the important visits to Dungan'stown, and people often forget the brewery visit, uh, which was equally important for the 22 maternal relatives in County Limerick. Um, it's the visit to um, Arbor Hill, which is very important. It's it's, it's the speech in Doyle Aaron, which is important. Um, so it, it, the importance is more from the Irish side. Now, of course, it plays well with Irish America. Um, but it, 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 the significance and, I, and, and the longevity, perhaps, of, of the memory is to do with, and also the state of Ireland at the time, in terms of the economy, um, in terms of Lamas coming in. Um, and um, in a sense, it's back to what Michael was saying with this theme of Ireland still trying to establish itself on the international stage. I, I think you've got you to contextualise it as well, if I can, briefly, that 1960 to 63, Ireland's getting involved in UN peacekeeping for the first time. Congo, later Cyprus. Um, uh, there's an Irish diplomat, Fred Boland, president of the UN General Assembly. He's later 
there's rumours that he'll succeed Dag Hammarskjöld as president of, of SecGen of the UN. Ireland's applying to the EEC for the first time in 1961. Ireland's on the Security Council, 62 into 63, I think. So it's a, a period where Ireland is expanding internationally. And, and here we can, with JFK, say, yeah, we're part of the, like, I, I think it's, is it Harold Wilson says, the white heat of technology or that, that. you know, we're, we're in the modern world. And it's, you're right in saying that we're, we see it as more important. Ivy House is terrified about the protocol for the visit. There's, there's only been one head of state level visit before to Ireland. It's 1961, uh, Prince Rainier and Princess Grace. And that's the dry one run for the Kennedy visit. And all sorts of things go wrong in that visit. I think crowd barriers crash down before the, uh, the Shelburne Hotel. There's all sorts of protocol issues to be sorted out. But with JFK, it is Perfect. The protocol files in the Department of Foreign Affairs archives on the visit, the state entertainment files on the state banquet are amazing to read because you see the amount of detail that goes into making sure that everything runs perfectly. And from what I can see, there, I mean, there may be small screw-ups, but there's, there's nothing big in it. So the visit is, is so important. I mean, the amazing thing, though, I mean, in terms of um, American perceptions of Ireland, the much bigger splash, I mean, is... Uh, few months later at the funeral. Yeah. So, the fu so the funeral of JFK is the biggest television event in American history. Everybody, the entire country watched it. And because of uh, the, the color guard that was presented in front of JFK, JFK had told Jackie O that, that uh, it was, he, he really kind of liked the, the, their style of kind of drill style. Um, and he kind of had an eye for that for having been in the military. And she asked for them to be, to, the rifles, the cadets to be brought over, and they uh, did their drill at the graveside in Arlington Cemetery in front of pretty much the entire United States. And, and it totally, and, it, and also think about a, America at this stage where there's, there's mili mandatory military service. Most of the males have served in the, in the military, and this kind of exotic drill very was, was a, a lot of people were talking about it. It didn't, of course, dominate things, but it was just this normalization perception and kind of bringing Ireland into the American stage and into, the, into, into living rooms. And it, 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 I suppose there's the legacy then lives on that, um, that uh, the, the shamrock ceremony is now uh, in, in place. The aura of Kennedy is there. Johnson has to take these on, even though maybe he's not particularly interested in Ireland, uh, that the, the, these are propelling positive Irish-American relations on through into the late 1960s at a period where I think the biggest issue in Irish-American relations is Pan Am putting pressure on Washington to ensure that it gets landing rights in Dublin Airport. And that becomes a really, it, it, it really um, messes up Irish-American relations as the decade begins to dr draw to a close. So again, we're back into a more negative period there, but the aura of Kennedy, the aura of the Shamrock Ceremony uh, continues on. And I think it's, it's due to Hearn's successor uh, as um, uh, Irish ambassador in Washington, Tommy Kiernan, uh, who gets on with JFK, and you were saying the, the Macmillan, Dean Ruskell, that, that relationship, that the, uh, Tommy Kiernan's relationship with JFK, uh, he's a much older man, he's close to retirement. Uh, the JFK is fascinated by him. The, the, I think the Kiernan's report reads back, we were on the same wavelength. So there's a, a very 
positive Irish diplomatic uh, involvement in, in Washington through the 1960s. Kiernan retires, uh, Bill Fay takes over, and it's the same uh, strong relationship there up until the late, late 60s. Just before we finish on JFK, anyone in the audience, um, well, anyone in the audience, will, uh, is there anyone in the audience who will admit to be, having been there? Right? That's the question I was going to ask. Anyone, any particular memories of the thing or, or what the atmosphere was like here? Yeah, it's, it's a radio mic here just behind you. Yeah. No, just, sorry, this gentleman behind you. Yeah, I'll come to you after that, yeah. Hi, thank you very much. Uh, yeah, I was uh, 12 at the time, and I was down in Cork and on the South Mall, and I can remember we, we had never seen anything like this before, so we, we didn't know what to expect. And then, so you, 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 you couldn't see anything really until the, the cavalcade was on top of you. And then the first thing I heard was a cheer. But the cheer was quite derisive. And it was the guard on a bike uh, cycling along, obviously, with a message. <laughs> he looked as if he wanted to get off the bike and baton charge the entire crowd. <laughs> uh, then about five minutes later, uh, there was um, a huge cheer. And this truck came past, and I said to myself, God, first of all, we're, che we're cheering a guard on a bike. Now we're cheering a truck. Uh, but it was, it was actually, what you didn't know unless you saw it was that the cavalcade was preceded by a great big lorry with, with cameramen hanging over the tailgate. Uh, so, and then suddenly the man himself was there. I remember two things, incredibly white teeth at a time when... Uh, white teeth were not as common in this country as hopefully they are today. And an incredible suntan. Uh, and just, like, he, he, was, he was really, it was an extraordinary uh, uh, vision, really, uh, all, if I can put it in those terms without sounding slightly sardonic. Uh, in so far as, now I was 12 at the time, but I was slightly precocious. Uh, but I think like, even Lamas had a doer quality to him, and Kennedy, in contrast, uh, was was I mean it was really it was one of those things. It was ten or fifteen seconds, and it is very clear in my memory today. Thank you. This gentleman there in front of you, uh, yeah, just use the mic there if you could. Yeah, uh, this is a slight change of tact because I was going to ask a question. Uh, Relating really to what people were saying earlier on, uh, I came across interesting uh, newspaper reports recently about 1920, and uh, it was, this is reported in the Dublin Press that in the United States it was a great move to try and establish for the first time uh, sort of an American diplomatic college because as far as the Americans were concerned, uh, according to Dublin, they were they were afraid that they, in the new after the First World War in diplomatic sense they were going to have circles run all over them, around them, I mean, because they were saw themselves as incredibly naive when it came to international relations. They didn't think they'd be able to uh, negotiate with the UK and so on because they hadn't got a history of trade diplomats. So this is sort of uh, idea I found fascinating because it's like, you know, people talk about the 20th century as the American century, but it's, it had to learn slowly. It wasn't so sophisticated mm -hmm. diplomatically at that time. And I wonder if there's an Irish parallel, because the funny thing is the Dublin press uh, that reported this was saying, actually, that's a good idea that the Americans have, setting up a diplomatic college 
because here we are, we've sent Devonair to America, but we've only got like a handful of people who might even we could possibly dreamed being able to do this thing. So I wonder if uh, my question really is on, uh, from the Irish side that uh, it's interesting if Smitty manages to get official recognition around 24 and so on. Uh, and then the question is, is he able to capitalize on it or not? And I wonder if the point, I'm not sure who made the point, I think it might have been Michael Kennedy saying that uh, Smitty, uh, he was far too pre preoccupied with things like, you know, factions of Clan de Gael in America and so on. Well, did the, did the early Irish diplomats make the mistake of not relying on the state channel that they managed to establish? Were they too concerned with Irish America, not with America itself? Like, what is Irish America? It's not much. But I uh, came across a trade report from 1928, the American Bureau of Trade, uh, Foreign Commerce, saying it's entirely logical for America right now to initiate direct trade uh, with the Irish Free State. But was Dublin on that wavelength at all? I know Cosgrave went there, but I was just saying about that, uh, the Irish, did they not uh, have their rely too much on Irish America and not thought enough about capitalizing upon whatever diplomatic relation they established with the American state itself? Sorry for waffling there. Um, well, when you look clearly and closely at the reports and their activities, you can see from Smitty onwards, there is a very strong awareness of the need to get at all politicians and any politicians who might be sympathetic and helpful to the Irish cause. Um, and one of the things that, that I'm working on the 1930s at the moment is that Michael McQuite is very strong on is using this thing of soft diplomacy. And in fact, he's, he's, to, he, and he's going out and he's talking to all the different Irish-American groups around the country in all sorts of guises, you know, religious, political, economic groups, trade groups. Um, and he, at the beginning, he's, you know, 1930 and 31, he's doing all this. And he gets, an, he gets I was going to say an email, he gets um, a telegram and a, a report from um, Joe Walsh to saying, concentrate on Washington. Build your relationships in Washington first. Now, there was obviously great concern about resources, uh, as was always a problem with the department, which was sometimes even mooted that it shouldn't exist at all, um, uh, particularly during budget times. But um, so it, there is a constant awareness of the need to broaden the issue and of the need to get related. But you're talking about a handful of individuals. You're talking about you have Smitty or McQuite in Washington. You then had a consul general in New York. You eventually have a consul in Chicago, um, Boston, and one over in San Francisco. They took over the work of over 50 British consular officers in the 1930s. They're swamped with issues relating to immigration, passports, and all the rest of it. So they do actually do exceptionally well, I would argue, in terms of getting um, sympathy, getting the message across. Um, but of course, they're always going to be, as we've said, um, fighting against that bigger and stronger relationship, which is that the special relationship that we've been talking about as well. But you're perfectly right. There is a very strong awareness of the need to widen the issue and the support for it. And it's not really until the, the embassy at, in Washington expands in the, the early 1970s uh, that Dublin is able to do what Walsh is suggesting yeah. to McWhite and to open up Irish contacts with Capitol Hill, with the, with the four horsemen, I mean, we'll, we'll get on to this. With, and, to, and during the Troubles, that relationship or that way that uh, Irish diplomacy improves, I think, with, within, um, within Washington, mm -hmm. 
is what Walsh would have wanted in the 1930s and 40s. Well, now, I want, I want to move on to that. I'm just looking at the time here, right, which is the impact of the, the, the Northern Troubles, uh, because this made things really complicated, <laughs> putting it mildly. Uh, I mean, so because it seems to me up to this point, Washington, as an official Washington, really can ignore Ireland most of the time, mm. right? Uh, but now it can't because of the, the, the outbreak of the Troubles, really. Well, it continues to ignore, really, until probably the Carter Initiative in 1977. Because the State Department, one of the first things in 68, 69, Sean O'Hadeen, what is uh, Irish charge of affair in, in Washington. Mind us what the Carter Initiative was. Yeah, I'll come back first. to that in a yeah. second. But, yeah. but he, he says that our two big problems when the Northern Troubles break out um, relate to a still Anglophile department, a State Department, and we have to get access to the White House. This awareness that you need a president to make his own initiative and make Ireland a specific project in a sense. Um, and it is only when then you have the president making it, taking over in a sense control of State Department Foreign Affairs, there is a realisation that there has, they have to get through, through the White House. Um, so that's there in 68, 69. That continues then until the very cleverly, the four um, horsemen who were named after four great quarterbacks, don't ask me the names, of the Notre Dame team in the 1920s. Um, so you had T.P. O'Neill, you had Hugh Carey, you had Ed Ke Edward Kennedy and you had Moynihan. Um, you had the four of those working then with Michael Lillis, Sean Donnellan and then the Irish uh, ministers at home. They then begin to... Um, they begin, to, they begin to talk to Carter and they frame the whole partition, Northern Irish troubles issue in the context of human rights. And remember, that's what Carter really understood. That was the language he understood. So then you begin, you get Carter then on side and he, he agrees that you have to begin to, remember, in that vacuum between 68, 69 and 1977, Norad, and the IRA had really developed a really professional, excellent um, fundraising organisation. Um, at, at the level, really, at a very kind of informal level, um, I think after 1970, when there was the Fort Worth three or four who'd been involved in gun running, um, one, of the, the, one of the Norad guys said all they had to do was send a phone call to the Bronx bars and they got the money to, to get them out. Um, so, you know, the, and, and that happened very quickly. So in that interim period where you had that vacuum, you had Norad taking over, um, you then had then eventually coming around to having Carter accept that they needed to get Irish America away from supporting the IRA. Uh, they needed then, and the, this was one of the carrots which becomes the Ireland Fund, that the Americans would agree to invest in Ireland and to set up a fund in the event of a peace process. But nothing happened at the time, though. No, but it's not. But I mean, you talk, look at Sean Donnellan's stuff, mm. and he's mm. written excellent articles in the Irish Times. He sees the direct link between the Carter Initiative <clears throat> through to the Good Friday Agreement, through to the process. You know, and that's yeah. 1977. It's not that long of a period in historical terms. Mm -hmm. um, but he would see a direct link, because that's the breakthrough when you begin to get the... Even then you have Reagan. Right. Reagan comes on side, uh, most unusually, after, particularly after Out, Out, Out. Um, and uh, because the key person there was Walter Clark. Walter Clark, who had how, been... How does Reagan come on side? What do you mean by that? It's through Walter Clark. He, he wanted to get T.P. O'Neill, Speaker of the House. He wanted to get uh, Speaker O'Neill to approve aid for the Contras in Nicaragua. And then in order to get, in order to appease and then, you know, to get T.P. O'Neill and, and the other horsemen, um, he then says, I'll do something on, um, on with Margaret Thatcher, who's due for a visit. And then he writes to T.P. O'Neill and he says, I've encouraged her to uh, 
there should be progress, the Irish should be involved. Um, and so therefore Carter, uh, Reagan begins to... to that's, not, that's not very successful either though, is it? I mean, but it's part of a long-term yeah. process. I mean, the big yeah. thing about that... I mean, the, the, it's good intentions though still, I, mean, yeah. I, I would suggest. Well, it's progress. Sorry. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, just the, big, just the, the, four, the four horsemen, they're, they're basically... So they're the two of the most powerful U.S. senators... And then you also have Tip O'Neill, who's the Speaker of the House, which is the most powerful position next to the president in the United States. Mm -hmm. And they're very much pro-Irish. And, they're very, and so, they're, and so they're, they're having a big impact on American foreign policy. Well, you see, yep. you've, Bernard, you've introduced another element here, right, which is, a, I suggest, a new element in this whole discussion, which is um, opposition to American foreign policy in Ireland, mm -hmm. domestically. Mm -hmm. uh, now, I, I'm assuming the origins of that would be the opposition to the Vietnam War in the 60s. But, you know, by the time Reagan comes here in 1984, I mean, there's very few people going out to, to greet him. It's not like Kennedy, mm. Patrick. I, and actually, you see some of that when uh, Richard Nixon visited here in 1970. Mm. Uh, there are some eggs thrown at, at, at the cavalcade as it goes back. So, yeah. Maureen de Borca, yeah. Exactly, well, yeah. It seems to have slipped in and slipped out and nobody noticed. Exactly. Right. So, so uh, and, 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 and he had Quaker origins and, and some of the Quaker communities he visited were uncomfortable as well because of what was going on with Vietnam. So, so the Nixon one isn't really uh, remembered. I think there was a good documentary called The Forgotten Visit or something. And then when Reagan visited in 84, uh, well, I was reading stuff about that recently uh, in preparation for this. And apparently Reagan, when he was running in 1980, kept denying his his Irish origins. He wanted to, to appeal as a good Republican to a more white Anglo-Saxon background and kept denying it. But then he was he was happier to take it on and apparently uh, was spending more time in the Irish embassy in Washington than he was in any of the others. Uh, but there you do see protests and I think Michael D. Higgins was, was involved in that. That uh, You find quite a lot of people were... Uh, although I do sometimes think that there can be a bit of a double standard in Ireland when it comes to uh, foreign policy protests that we're, we're, more, we're happier... Uh, we're happier uh, protesting against Republican uh, presidents, but we give Democrat presidents, I think, uh, uh, a free ride. So uh, obviously there was a huge welcome for uh, President Obama uh, in May 2011, but we kind of like, we're not worried about drones and things like that when it's, when it's Obama doing it. Mm. It links into, the, the, the Reagan visit, I think, links into quite a, a change in public, the public relationship with foreign policy in, in the late 1970s, and also a growing dislike of NATO based on anti-nuclear protests, you know, the plan to build a power station at Carnesaw Point, uh, the, the nuclear power station, the, the, the interest, say, in the, the Greenham Common women, uh, interest in Latin American, South yeah. American affairs as well, that the, there's a, a consciousness there amongst a more globalized Irish I'd say, I wouldn't just say middle class, but a globalized Irish population who see Reagan as part of wider problems in the, the international system. And there's also that knee-jerk anti-Americanism that is within the Irish psyche, that it's, there is a love-hate relationship there with the US. And with Reagan, it comes out in the, in the, 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 the anti-form, the, 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 the hatred form. I mean, like, a, yeah, I mean, didn't a lot of the left sends some folks to Sandinistas, uh, to Nicaragua to pick, you know, bring in the coffee crop. And, and you said it was, and it's also, it's this escalation of nuclear, of 
the, the fear of nuclear conflict. And that's what's kind of driving a lot of this and, and it's part of, as you said, European discourse. Yep. Although I do actually love the fact that as time goes on, you look back almost with a sense of nostalgia because so Reagan president in the 80s, but then 20 years later when George W. Bush was president, people kind of went, you know, compared to, compared to Reagan wasn't actually that bad. Uh, but now people look back to George W. Bush and they go, you know, he actually wasn't so stupid after all. Yeah, yeah. You know, some of those things are positively articulate and Shakespearean compared to. You know, Trump today about the whole Manchester thing, his comment was losers. You know, the level of... Yeah. I tell you, we, we've, we've skipped... Uh, anyone in the audience want to come in there? Uh, yeah, just if you get the mic here. No, just wait, wait for the mic, so because we're, we're, it's, this is being recorded, so you won't be heard otherwise. What? <laughs> just. I found the statement about the asking of De Valera for the keys to the German embassy most interesting, because I was regularly skewered in the United States when I was promoting youth and educational travel by people who would turn to me in certain circles and say, but De Valera signed the book of condolence for Hitler. I had not heard what you said before. We, we move forward to... Um, uh, so quickly that I was pointing out that one president's visit had been overlooked, and we are being recorded, President Clinton. I was, I was about to move on to President Clinton. <laughs> he was next on my list, right. Mm. Um, yeah, what about Clinton? Because um, it was seen to me Clinton is the only American president ever did anything tangible for Ireland, full stop. Well, we're Discuss. back to a, a personal initiative and a project. Um, and also remember one, he, he issued a statement um, just before uh, polling day, um, when he was elected the first time, um, which indicated that he was interested in Ireland, he was going to do something about it. In a sense, he, phrases, he frames it, it's almost in that America's international role, that its role as a mediator. Um, it, and, and just like Carter sees it in his human rights terms, that, that um, Clinton sees it in other um, kind of US foreign policy principle issues. But he remember one of his major uh, appointees, Clinton at that stage, was Nancy Soderbergh, who was uh, Kennedy's, um, who had worked for Kennedy. So she's a kind of a, con a, a link or a point of continuity from the 1970s and the Four Horsemen through to Clinton. Um, so he, he is interested in Ireland. I think he, and of course he sees it as, as, as a possible win situation in a sense and he's willing to invest in it. Isn't he lucky though that just at that period that the Cold War has come to an end, that the bipolar division of the world has temporarily, uh, unfortunately, uh, has, has, has ceased. Mm. So he's able to take a more independent position vis-a-vis -vis the, the British. Yeah, he is. Um, and, but he also, remember, he's highly irritated with the British as well, because remember, the British Home Office, uh, they reckon, um, had attempted to uncover um, records, immigration records, in London, showing that he had attempted to change his nationality to evade the draft. Right. 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 And that was a big was, issue when he ran. He was when he ran, really irritated. When he, that was a totally, it was, that was a very, uh, yeah, it, it, it released, they released his private diplomatic records and created a big, Kind of pseudo scandal, right about a, about a month before the election, uh, when he when he when he won the first time against Bush for right. old old Bush, and uh, yeah, you're right. That's I hadn't, hadn't thought of that. I mean, he must have also come over here. Like, what year was he? In, did he do his Rhodes Scholarship in Oxford? I mean, was it was it was it before or after the Troubles? 
No, I can't remember. It's 68. 68. Yeah. Um, you wonder if he came over. I mean, I think that must have that, that seemed to have affected his because you know he's from Arkansas. He wouldn't really have that that kind of uh, attention. I mean, the interesting thing I think about the 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 peace process. I don't think people over here recognize what a figure, what a big figure George Mitchell was. Yeah. Yeah. George Mitchell was was you know was majority leader of the U.S. Senate. He's it's like the equivalent of Mitch McConnell. I mean, he's, he was the biggest wheel in Capitol Hill, and for and he and he kind of resigned. And came right over, and that was that was he had a whole lot of uh, of gravitas mm. that that was thrown in. You, you probably couldn't have picked a a, a, a more senior uh, person to put into that uh, into that process. Patrick, what, what would you think of Clinton? I mean, would the, would would we have a peace process without him? I certainly think he showed a huge amount of courage because there was a bit of a backlash, certainly here when he gave that visa uh, to Jerry Adams, that there was. Uh, uh, it, it certainly was, it, it, it showed courage and, and, and there was a certain element of, of risk there that uh, uh, there's, a, there's an undergraduate dissertation that I would love to read because when Chelsea Clinton was a student in Stanford, she did her dissertation on, on the peace process, but of course her main primary source was an interview with her dad. <laughs> so uh, on, on one level, that's definitely taking a shortcut uh, to, to doing your research, uh, where you don't need to leave your house, you just need to. But on the other hand, I bet you there are probably some wonderful insights into that, into, and I, I, I have to say, I, maybe the panel might know, I, I, I don't fully know why, some, some reasons have been given, but, I don't really know why he did become so emotionally. I think maybe as time went on and they were getting such great reactions in Belfast and Dublin that then I think it became, you know, something powerful and meaningful for them and for Hillary Clinton as well. But I think in that initial stage that you know, well, think, it, think it about South Africa. I mean, the, 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 I mean, we, we don't think that's really exciting. 1990, 91, exciting time. What's going on in Eastern Europe? But like, what happened with Mandela being released? Geez, that, that just that was yeah. people just didn't could foresee that, and so all of a sudden, the, these kind of intractable conflicts seem like they could be. Yeah, so, so Clinton yeah. recognizes it's a time for to, to, to for it's a historical decisive, moment. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. that, and it's going to pass. I mean, it's not going to. You get these moment, these periods in history, not that often, yeah. really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyone in the audience want to come up? Frank, yeah, if you the, just get the, the microphone. Hi, a couple of things. Apparently Clinton was here during the Berntollet march and he watched it on television. And apparently that had that a great, info, great impact on him, which he apparently uh, remembered year, uh, years later. Regarding... Uh, I think um, Joe Kennedy Jr. Apparently, that had his suicide mission. I think had more to do with the rivalry between he and his younger brother Jack. Jack was the playboy, and Joe Jr. was being primed to to basically run for president. Even though, and so it was when Jack was the hero, uh, and of course uh, Joe Sr. made sure that this was played up in all the newspapers. So now Jack is the the new national hero. And the elder brother, Joe, <laughs> felt that apparently he, the only thing he could do was to become a bigger hero, and un unfortunately he died. But if I could say one thing, no one seemed to mention the 
the role of when well, was he was mentioned, but it wasn't expanded on Frank Aiken. Mm. Okay, mm. Frank Aiken, to me, in, in the 1970s, sorry, the 1950s and 60s, brought the Ireland into the the world of of diplomacy. Um, in the teeth of you know American fury, we wanted to seat Red China, mm. and this was uh, an absolute. Uh, mortal sin in, in the eyes of John Forster Dulles and Alan Dulles and all these people. And also, we took the lead in decolonization yeah. because these emerging countries um, in Asia, in Africa, they, they looked to, to Ireland because we had gone through it. And so, and uh, Aiken did not fail them. He, he really stood up for them. And again, uh, he supported Algeria in the, fa in the face of our friends in France, our historical... Uh, friends, and I think that um, that's something which is really, is really very important. And one thing, people don't realize about, the, about Northern Aid in the 70s. It wasn't that they were so, the backbone of Northern Aid in the urban centers of, of, of uh, the eastern side of, of, of the United States was not directed against Northern Ireland. It was again, directed against Southern Ireland. These people had emigrated not from the north, but from the south. And they have immigrated with very little education. And they saw effectively Dublin-based, although Jack Lynch was from Cork, but he was from, you know, basically an urban center, okay? These people were, had emigrated with very little education. And this was their way, in my opinion, and I think other people may agree, of getting back at not so much, although they didn't like the, mm -hmm. obviously the uh, successors to the British Empire, you know, the, the, the UK and everything else, and well, the British Empire was still going on at the time. But this was their way, I think, of expressing their anger towards their own background and how they had to, to leave uh, the 26 counties with very little education and, and almost no money, and they, they had a, a very difficult time in the United States. Right, I tell you, I'm looking at the clock here, and I re we've nearly run out of time. We haven't come to the T word yet. <laughs> um, <laughs> So I, I better throw this into the to discussion. I mean, my question on Trump is, does he make any difference? Or is this all just kind of smoke and mirrors and noise? Anybody? It's a great question. Uh, uh, it'll be definitely interesting to see uh, uh, how he reacts to whoever is the new Taoiseach who emerges out of, out of this process. Oh, so we're only talking about him in terms of Ireland. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Oh, I think in terms of the rest of the world, he's making a big difference, and it's not a good one. No, I, I'm just curious, uh, are, uh, any of the Americans in the audience, what they have to say on this. And by the way, I'll, I lecture students down in Griffith College, and uh, about two-thirds of them are Americans. We had a kind of a, a discussion on the last day, you know, about what, what they thought of Ireland and blah, blah, blah. And anyway, they said, we're fed up being asked questions about Donald Trump, right? That was, that was our main complaint, right? Um, <clears throat> although they said uh, everyone was very friendly about it, and of course I, I had to explain to them that Irish people can be very friendly on a personal level but express very trenchant views on American foreign policy or any American policy. So I, I'm just curious, anyone in the audience there, um, if, if you have anything to contribute on that. Yeah, just get the mic here, hold on. People in this country are react. Oh, sorry. How people in this country um, are reacting to the large number of um, Irish names that are surrounding Trump? There's a question now. Yeah, I mean, 
it's, it, it's packed with hyphenated Americans, uh, the, the, the White House at the moment, isn't it? I tell, you what's, I tell you what you see, I would blame, I blame Pope John Paul II because the American Catholic Church has gotten quite right wing and they've gone to, they've gone to war on these cultural issues, on gay, on gay marriage and on abortion and they have driven a whole generation of Irish Americans to, uh, to the Republican Party and to this hardline right wing way of thinking. Uh, and that's what I that's what I attribute it to. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think that this kind of hardening of conservative uh, American Catholics got a whole lot more concerned. You know, my my bishop uh, from San Francisco, John Quinn, uh, another Kansas City Irish guy. Uh, he the, the American bishops and when I was a kid in 1980 passed a, a, a resolution condemning the nuclear arms race. Uh, Quinn was down at Oscar Romero's uh, celebrated Oscar Romero's funeral and. He administered the gay uh, to, to uh, the first AIDS generation. Um, he also opened up all the San Francisco diocese churches to refugees from Central America. He was forced out of office by John Paul, and and or you should see the, the bishops we've had since then. And that's just a, that's just a, an indication. But I think that the the American Catholics have gotten much more conservative, and I think they're following been following the lead from Vatican and the hierarchy. Yeah, I'm not sure if the surnames thing really matters at all. But of course, there's another president who has a good Irish connection, and that's President Obama, whose great, great, six times back great grandfather on his mother's side uh, came from uh, came from uh, County Offaly. And, and I was there when he was here in May 2011, speaking outside uh, College Green, and he was talking about the emigrant experience, you know, having to leave in the late 1840s in the middle of the famine, whereas the actual, didn't know if they'd ever meet their family, whereas the actual truth is that they actually were a quite well-off family. And his great, great, great granduncle had actually been the provost of Trinity College Dublin, just across the way. And his grandfather was going off to meet the uncle who had set up a, a base there. But uh, you've got loads of different Irish dynamics there. And I, I don't think it really matters too much about the surnames. Mike, you're, you're, you're the diplomatic expert here, right? Um, what, do you, what, what do you, I mean, oh, no, don't think um, what do you reckon on Trump then? I mean, you, of course, you haven't seen the papers yet. Don't give me that answer. <laughs> no, I, I haven't. But, but one thing that, that fascinated me that, on this, that my wife and I were in New York, the Democratic Trump base, in August, and we really sensed a change in opinion there, just from people that we were meeting, people we were, we were talking to, conversations we heard in diners, in restaurants. And if we had been betting people and put money on Trump winning, which we felt, we thought when we got back to Dublin, he's going to win. Nobody believed us. We didn't put any money. I would probably <laughs> down in Mar-a-Lago today as well with my winnings from that bet if I had, had done it. But that was the thing that really, really struck both of us from everything we listened to. We thought there is something changing here and we couldn't quite sum it up, but we thought he is going to win. And we were uh, at one of the, uh, Patrick, you were there as well, one of the election night events here in, in Dublin. And you could see the, it just, it died. Like the mood just changed. And people went home and I, I walked home. I, I, I had no wallet with me. And I just thought, oh God, what am I going to wake up to in the morning? You know, what's, what is the, the victory going to be? Well, at least we've got a few months left. And what's the world from January going to be like? But that, I mean, that was, my take was, that what really comes back to me was that, that memory of, of, of August in, in New York last year thinking 
there's a wind here that we're not getting the drift of back in Europe or, or back in, uh, in, in, in the circles that I, I move in in Ireland, maybe. Yeah, but that, but that, that raises the, the unpalatable idea that really he reflects, he's, a, he's a, an accurate reflection of American society, whether we like it or not. A segment of American society. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, I, mean, I think also comes back to one of the points that was made earlier. I mean, that we are, it seems to be instinctively, more sympathetic towards the Democratic rather than the Republican, mm. anyway, in Ireland. Um, and so there were so many hopes and expectations and assumptions made. But then we weren't the only ones, because the media was also representing the, it in the same way. I mean, mm. my hope really is that whatever you, you ask, what difference can he make? As long as he doesn't start a war, I think, you know. That's fine. I mean, there are those everyday things that you're going to that are obviously on on the cards for the ordinary diplomats. You know, trade tariffs, illegal immigration. Um, but outside of that, um, there's just the the kind of instability, really, um, uh, which. And maybe instability in the State Department as well. It's something yeah. I was listening to yesterday about the number of ambassadorial posts that haven't been yeah. filled, yeah. morale being so low in the State yeah. Department. That how do you, you how will the US represent itself at nuts and bolts level overseas if it doesn't have ambassadors, charges, trade representatives to do the various bits of work. What I just say is, I, what really, no, I, it's not a joke. That's, you know, there's kind of like, he fired, he fired the FBI director in a complete obstruction of justice in a way that's never happened in American history. And the TV is saying, oh, you're fired. Like, it's a joke. It's not a joke. And, and, and that's what, it's a serious business, and we're in a crisis of, de of democratic norms across Europe, uh, and it's, we should start waking up. And you should also think about, if that can happen in America, it can happen here. And I like that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we'll have to cut that out for the radio. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Joseph Quinn, academic tutor in UCD. Um, I just wanted to, there were a couple of points that I was going to make, but um, I'm going to keep it to one. Uh, one, of the, one of the points I was going to make was to do with the stellar work of the Irish Diplomatic Service after the Second World War and pointing out the contribution that Irish citizens made to the Allied war effort as volunteers in the British and Allied forces and as war workers working for the British war effort. Uh, but uh, out of fear of uh, Michael lynching me on that point, I'm going to move on to the point about um, Irish service personnel in the US forces from the First World War onwards. They served in tens of thousands. We don't really know how many served in U.S. uniform during the First World War in numbers that were not, had not been seen since the American Civil War when they served nearly at a strength of a quarter of a million. We still don't know. Um, in the Second World War, it was a lesser number, but there were a significant number of Irish-born service personnel. Again, we don't know the numbers, um, and as well as countless uh, sons and daughters of Irish immigrants, um, either barely born in Ireland or their parents had just arrived on American shores before they came into the world. And Irish-born uh, soldiers, sailors and airmen, as well as women, continued to serve in the United States Armed Forces right through from the First World War until uh, the present day. In fact, the most recent casualty, I think, of um, the so-called War on Terror was a gentleman from County Clare who was in the United States Marine Corps. Uh, the only casualty of the Gulf War, the only Irish casualty of the Gulf War in US forces was actually a school friend of an uncle of mine. And he was killed in a friendly fire incident in Desert Storm. 
Uh, the reason I'm bringing up this point is, I think, more pertinent to my mind connected in with the theme of this talk, US intervention in the First World War right up to Trump. Because I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that under a Trump presidency, we're closer now than we ever have been to a United States and Western world intervention in a very, very serious world conflict, or at the very least, a very serious regional conflict, uh, given the great political instability that's emanating from the Trump White House. And it's a sober point to, I suppose, conclude on, because I wager that, unfortunately, a great deal of Irish-born and Irish-American service personnel might end up in casualties of such a conflict um, if that were to occur. Um, but I think it's just a point to point out that our, our people have been at the forefront of the fight for democracy and for freedom all around the world in US uniform, and I don't think sh that should be ignored. Thank you. Did somebody at the front here want to come in? Do you want to come in? Okay. I tell you, Andy, yeah, just, just here, and I'll take one more question. I'll take two more questions after that, so we're, we're going to wrap up then. Yeah, just lady here. Um, I, I suppose I'll start with an observation where I heard about poor Al Smith and that photo. I thought fake news was still there back in the 1920s. Um, but a question I suppose I'd have, and, and maybe it's out of ignorance, um, I currently work with a lot of people who, who actually are living overseas in, in the States. Um, and a lot of them, I suppose, would be classified as illegal immigrants, although we always consistently choose the term undocumented Irish in America. Um, I'm just wondering, because having spoken with a lot of them, the fear... Of, of, you know, reprisal from Trump or being taken from their homes and brought back to Ireland is very real for these people on a daily basis. I'm just wondering, from your perspective, has that, has the policy by, by the states towards the undocumented Irish, has that ever, that fear, been as intense under any previous president or is there, is there any situation in, in which that fear has been as palpable? I'd, I'd say, it, don't, you know, it, it, there was such a big increase of, uh, of undocumented folks in the 90s and, and first 10 years. I mean, the Bush administration very much encouraged, um, uh, you know, uh, undocumented migrants crossing the borders uh, and did nothing to really stop it. Um, the, I know people, I know, <laughs> I know people who are undocumented and they're scared out of their wits. Basically, they're, you're in a position that if you get pulled over for anything, and they run your, ask for your ID and run your ID, you can get deported straight away. It's not just a question of not going home for funerals. It's a question of, you just live it. It's, 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 a, it's a massive increase of anxiety. Um, and I always thought, I tell you again, as, a, as someone who follows American politics, I always thought the biggest joke in the world was the idea of a T-shirt going over and getting some kind of special pass for the Irish uh, undocumented, because that's never in a million years gonna happen. Uh, and so it's, it's all the undocumented are in the same boat, and it's not a pleasant one right now. Um, I'm just wondering if, if the panel care to comment uh, whether they think that uh, Mr. Trump will succeed in reversing either the Paris Agreement on climate change and the carbon uh, uh, limits, and also Obamacare, the health measures, whether he will be allowed by his own legislature or even the Republican Party, or what's the view on, on the, either of those topics or both, if you have time? 
Anyone have a comment on that? I mean, I, I'll just go in again because I'm <laughs> obsessed on all this stuff. Uh, uh, I think that the only the only part of his administration that seems to be working is uh, the Environmental Protection Agency. He brought in a bunch of kind of very much industry people and, and lobbyists who seem to have an agenda. So I, if I had a guess, I would say that that's the only place they're actually delivering some of their policies. Um, in terms of uh, Obamacare, I just don't really think it's going to pass. That it sounds like the new the 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 House, they might have to repass it in the House, which probably won't happen, just because of some statutory rules. I don't think it's going to happen. And uh, it, you know, it's it's uh, the Republicans are very very scared of passing a repeal. Okay, we have two more questions, right? So yeah, this gentleman here first, and then yourself, and we'll, we'll wrap it up then. Um, well, at the risk of I'm going to swim against the tide here. Um, what would you say to the proposition that, in actual fact, Mr. Trump getting elected possibly might be the best thing that has happened in American politics for quite some time on this basis? For example, uh, the speaker there mentioned Comey being sacked. Um, and, and your phrase was used throughout the American uh, press. You can't do that. Trump just done it. Now, I, don't do it. I, know he's, I know all of the negative things about him. What I would propose is that he certainly is establishment, despite what he says. People say, oh, he's anti-establishment. No, he's anti-diplomatic establishment. He is not of, of, of political persuasion. So if you accept my proposition that really American politics has been so corrupt, possibly since Wilson, presidents in America do not. I think people delude themselves particularly the American people, that they, the, the, the American presidents have, have somehow a power. This thing about him being the most powerful man in the world, sometimes I find out, I don't know whether I'm a great insight or people are lacking in insight. I, I would contend that there's a kind of, it's either a, an elite bureaucracy or a plutocracy that runs America. So no matter what Trump does, be it the Obama, be the, the Obamacare, if that doesn't suit this elite, this plutocracy, it won't happen. So Trump, what I'm saying is he's in there. Uh, we all know he's an egomaniac. We know in so many ways he's a charlatan. But it certainly is, is, is uh, how would I say, uh, it's, it's, it's getting the uh, political situation in America, people to think about their politics mm, a lot more than they ever did. That's certainly true. Just, uh, yeah, this, yeah, the final question there, we'll, we'll wrap up then. Okay, sorry, and that's it then, right? Just yeah, I know you had your hand up earlier. Sorry. Uh, th thanks very much, Chairman. Just two quick points and one more substantial observation. Uh, you you were inquiring about uh, whether or not Irish army officers still attend uh, command and staff courses in the U.S. In fact, they do. Uh, the current chief of staff, uh, Admiral Mark Mellet, attended the War College. I know that for a fact. I think I think it's quite a regular feature. Second point I would make is that De Valera signed the Book of Condolences, but not as Taoiseach. He was also Minister for External Affairs. He was wearing his Minister for External Affairs hat when he signed. Now, it still was a very foolish decision, but I think there is a distinction there uh, that, that uh, I, I just like to mention. 
the, the final uh, I think the US State Department is getting a very bad press tonight. Uh, they were uh, operating in, in, in a context in which, th this is in immediate post-Second World War, in which, in which they had stood shoulder to shoulder with Britain in the First World War and in the Second World War. They had shed blood together. There was no way, I think, that they were going to park that, uh, the bonds that had been forged in those two titanic struggles, and uh, uh, start playing footsie with uh, a very small country on the outer outskirts of Europe. Thank you very much. Yeah. Last question, definitely. Uh, not, a, not really a question. I was hugely enlight enlightened here tonight. Thank you very much. Just want to say, um, the American residents in in the Phoenix Park. I, I, I mean, it, I, I always uh, I had heard that um, they got this privilege. It's a very privileged location because they were the first to recognise Irish. <laughs> but I've, I've been mo more enlightened since I came here tonight. But apart from that, <clears throat> isn't it quite amazing that they got it at a peppercorn rent for one pound? And then it recently, in the last few years, it was sold to the United States um, government by the by um, just after the downturn there when when um, Kenny came in. Uh, yes. Uh, well, well, well. <laughs> whatever. But it, it's one of the things that was sold off very quietly, and I don't know if you have any. Any that? Yeah, well, well, it was uh, your your initial view on on the arrangement. Um, it, it it was discussed. Um, there was an agreement that they should get it um, in the early days, and they got it. They were asked to yeah, they were asked to change from where the papal nuncio was because that was the building they were in initially, and then they got it. And it's really interesting looking at the correspondence of uh, particularly one minister. I, I won't take too long. A fellow called Alvin Owsley and his wife and children who were there in 35, 36, I think it is. They are thrilled to be there, and their the, the descriptions of the parks and the deer and everything, and it is a great draw for a lot of the um, U.S. Um, ministers, ambassadors who begin to come in. Then after that, so yes, they did, and there was a, because that American relationship was the, one of the prime ones. If, and the Vatican is the other. You've got the, the twin ones, pillars yeah. of Irish foreign policy there in the park. <laughs> Okay, guys, I'm, I'm just the clock has beaten us here. We, we've gone uh, overtime, actually, so I'm going to have to wrap up there. Um, just to say that our, the next History Iron Head School will be done in Lismore, County Waterford, uh, at the uh, Robert Boyle Summer School, so it, it will have a, a, a science uh, angle. Uh, that'll be on Saturday, the 24th of June. But I'd like to thank our panel here tonight, uh, Michael Kennedy, uh, Bernadette Whelan, um, John Borgonovo, and... Um, uh, Patrick Gagan, <laughs> and he's still looking at his, at his watch there. No, no, no developments there yet, Patrick. Uh, and I'd like to thank you, the audience, and in particular those people who contributed from the floor, and I hope to see you here again for future head schools. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> 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 Another one. Another one, Mike. Now you've been initiated into the dark. Yeah. Yeah.